G'day and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Arjun Sluter about his article, Long-Term Mental Health Problems After Delirium in the Intensive Care Unit, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Sluter is a Professor of Intensive Care Neuropsychiatry at Utrecht University's Rudolf Magnus Brain Centre. He also serves as a consultant neurologist intensivist in the Department of Intensive Care Medicine at the University Medical Centre of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Arjun, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Arjun, before we begin, uh, do you have any disclosures that you'd like to share in particular? I have a uh, disclosure that is somehow related to this, and it means that we are working on an EEG-based monitor to detect delirium uh, objectively. Um, it's not related to long-term outcomes. Arjun, your study examined the relationship between delirium and long-term mental health problems, and I guess the obvious place to start is actually at the end. How common are psychiatric sequelae after ICU care? They're quite common. Uh, there are not so much studies on this, but um, studies that have been performed indicate that the uh, frequency of psychiatric problems in ICU survivors is about 30 or 40 percent after one year. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with uh, quite a frequent uh, problem. What sort of mental health uh, sequelae do ICU patients suffer from? Several, and uh, there is quite some overlap between uh, between these. Uh, but we are talking about uh, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress symptoms, but also cognitive disorders. So there are several problems that can occur, and uh, our study uh, showed that these overlap uh, to a large extent, and uh, these uh, problems together uh, are called uh, post-intensive care syndrome. There can also be physical problems like uh, weakness that persists uh, for a long time, and this all leads to impaired quality of life. So it's fairly easy to see a, a, a link uh, at an intuitive level between being in an ICU in, and extremely unwell and having anxiety, for example, but is there a proposed link between the development of delirium and psychiatric complications per se? Yeah, well, we, we expected this. We uh, had the hypothesis that uh, neuropsychiatric problems during ICU admissions would be related to uh, neuropsychiatric problems after admission, uh, but that uh, didn't uh, appear to be the case in our study, uh, and the same was observed in a study from the Vanderbilt group um, that uh, published this in, an, in another article. So what we have seen in other patients, uh, patients uh, who did not stay in the ICU, in these patients it was found that delirium was associated with long-term psychiatric problems, but we didn't see this in our study, and same, and, and neither in, in a completely different uh, cohort. It seems to be that delirium is, and these long-term outcomes are different issues and seem not to be related. Is there a biological mechanism that's been put forward as explaining any potential link? Well, the, the, the importance of delirium is, is much more in uh, long-term cognitive impairment. So uh, that is very consistent in the literature. It's also supported by studies in non-ICU patients. So uh, th this is very, very, quite a strong link, I think, and that's the importance of delirium with uh, long-term cognitive impairment. With regard to long-term uh, psychiatric problems after ICU admission, 
uh, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I think uh, there the biological mechanisms are, are really unclear. Uh, we are really at the start of, uh, of this um, field of investigations. From several studies, it has become clear now that these problems are very common, uh, and some associations have been uh, found, like with uh, sedatives, which appear to be a risk factor for long-term psychiatric problems. Uh, but further, there's not a lot to be done for uh, further investigations. So tell us about the study that you performed. How did you go about it? Yeah, well, we, we had the hypothesis that uh, delirium would be uh, related to long-term psychiatric problems, and therefore we assessed delirium during ICU admission here in uh, this uh, this ICU where I'm working, University Medical Center in Utrecht, the Netherlands, uh, mixed ICU. We classified all patients into either awake and not delirious, or delirious or unarousable or comatose, uh, one out of three, and we classified all patients per day. So there was a delirium day or there was a comatose day uh, or there was an awake without delirium day. And what we did was we studied this classification, so uh, mental status in relation to long-term psychiatric problems. And we assessed this with a questionnaire that was sent to all surviving patients uh, one year after discharge. And uh, for this, we made use of several uh, validated and well-recognized uh, questionnaires that were bundled into a questionnaire that was uh, sent uh, by mail to the uh, patients. Uh, that was the uh, HATS, the Hospital Anxiety Depression Scale, and the Impact of Each Event Scale to assess uh, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorders. And, uh, well, basically, this is quite a straightforward uh, study design and a prospective uh, cohort study. And what we found uh, was uh, quite high frequencies of uh, mental health problems. That was anxiety and depression were found in 43-45% of patients. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was found in 39% of patients. So approximately 40% of uh, survivors had mental health problems. But what was interesting uh, further was that we assess the overlap because these problems are many times considered as separate problems. But what we found was that patients who suffered from PTSD very frequently also had anxiety or depression. So any mental health problem was found in 53, uh, more than, well, about half of uh, all survivors. So that's, that's really a very frequent uh, condition. And many times when there was such a problem, it was overlapping. So uh, 63% of uh, all those patients that had these problems had all problems at the same time. And no relationship, to our surprise, was found with uh, with delirium. Just for some context, Arjun, can you tell us about the type of patient that was included in this study? How sick were they? They were quite sick. And to give you an indication, uh, we had an um, Apache 4 uh, score of uh, in the whole uh, study population of uh, about uh, 70 that was dependent on you can see it in table one of our, our uh, article that differed of course between patients uh, with and without delirium there it is stratified for the presence or absence of uh, delirium but we uh, have quite sick patients uh, who have several conditions so it's a mixed ICU with uh, medical patients, surgical patients, and uh, cardiothoracic surgery uh, patients. We excluded for this study 
neurosurgical and other neural ICU patients because in these patients it's really difficult to assess delirium uh, because the well this uh, is, is difficult to assess in relation to the underlying uh, brain disorder uh, in these type of patients. So the study population was restricted to medical, surgical and cardiothoracic surgery patients. For logistical reasons, you used a self-reported assessment of uh, psychiatric conditions. For those of us who aren't familiar with this sort of research, how valid are those types of surveys? Well, there are indeed for practical reasons uh, this was used. It's an enormous effort to uh, to get all patients uh, back to the hospital to assess them. And in many patients who, well, have not recovered completely, it's, it's an enormous challenge to come to the hospital. And this would lead to uh, really a loss of follow-up and uh, a loss of response. Uh, so we made the decision to indeed uh, assess this with uh, questionnaires that were sent to uh, to everyone. Uh, but what we included were questionnaires that have been used many, many times. So to assess anxiety, depression, we made use of the HATS, so the Hospital Anxiety Depression Scale, which is very well validated, used many, many times. Uh, and to assess post-traumatic stress disorder, we made use of the uh, impact revised impact of event scale, uh, which is also a very well-known and very well-validated questionnaire. One of the questions that came from the study for me was how you would account for the response rate of 78%. Do you think that that could have uh, influenced the results in that people who are more subject to psychiatric sequelae may not have responded at the same rate? Absolutely. This is always a concern in follow-up studies, the response rate, and uh, every investigator wants, obviously, a response rate of 100%. is never going to be, and for, for that, a response rate of almost 80% is, is quite good. And it, it is, well, it is in all studies really difficult to get it higher. Uh, we made some efforts to get it as high as possible, but still, uh, I agree with you, it's of concern that patients who did not respond uh, may differ from those who ended up in this study. It's a bit of speculation what kind of effect it would be, uh, would have uh, those uh, patients who did not respond, what kind of patients these were. It was not completely clear from this study uh, what kind of uh, influence it uh, could have. Uh, we did not find an, an a difference with regard to important characteristics between those with and without a response. But you may assume that these patients who did not respond may have more severe psychiatric problems. It was a burden to be confronted with it again with a questionnaire. That is a bit of speculation, but uh, again, a response rate of 80 is, is quite good for these type of studies, I think. Arjun, much has been made recently of the difference between a psychoactive delirium or an active delirium and a passive delirium. Was that examined in your study at all? Well, we uh, we did assess uh, this, but I should stress that this is very difficult to uh, to do so because this uh, differs very much in time. Uh, so patients can be for well a period of time a bit agitated afterwards. You may receive some sedatives or so when it is really out of control and is really very severe and may go on in a hypoactive type of delirium. It's very difficult to uh, to assess this and it's really a bit of a controversial, really a kind of difficult problem to classify patients uh, well with regard to the motor subtype. 
in a way that there are no uh, criteria to do this in the same way every time. It is an, an assessment, it's just a moment in time that you do this. So the, the whole classification of the motor subtype is really difficult here. Um, the same holds, holds true actually for other types of delirium with regard to the etiology. Uh, so some types of uh, some patients had delirium due to sepsis, others because of uh, renal failure, others because of medication. And actually, when you have a close look at at uh, this, um, there's a mix of of all causal factors together. So delirium is very much a multifactorial condition, and it's actually impossible to make uh, really good uh, subgroups of uh, of patients all causes are acting together also in patients for example with uh, sepsis uh, also these patients have uh, renal failure or uh, side effects of uh, of medication so we end up and and not not just we in other studies the same way uh, as in a condition that is heterogeneous but multifactorial where it's not really possible to split it in in several categories if we take the results of your study on face value and that there is no link between delirium and psychiatric consequences, what are the other factors that may contribute to psychiatric complications of ICU care? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent question and a very, very important topic to investigate further in the coming years because what we, what we know now is that these problems are very frequent. Uh, not limited to one institution or so. We see it in, in several places in the world uh, have been studies performed where uh, these uh, findings have uh, have been uh, observed. So we know that it's very frequent. Uh, we know some risk factors, but it's very, very limited. Uh, we know that sedatives seem to increase the risk of uh, long-term mental health problems, in particular PTSD. But in fact, that is more or less all we know. So the big question is what is happening in the brain? What's the underlying substrate? Uh, what can we do with regard to prevention? What can we do with regard to therapy? Uh, is this the same as other types of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, cognitive failure, cognitive dysfunction? Uh, we do not know. Uh, there, are, there are enormous lots of questions that we really should uh, address. And this is, this is absolutely important because it's so frequent, there's enormous impact on quality of life, and it's not what we know, what we want to achieve with uh, critical care, that the outcome is uh, is miserable in a very large proportion of patients. Um, it's not uh, our intention, uh, of course, and it's it's not an, an a good, good outcome when when the um, quality of life is, is that bad. Uh, so we should address this uh, and uh, pay much more attention to this. Arjun, is there any suggestion that better management of delirium has had an impact on psychological consequences of intensive care? Well, there is, it, it is a very difficult uh, difficult point, but there, is, there are some, uh, some indications for that, and that is that when delirium is uh, detected and treated uh, very early, as early as possible, then the outcome seems to be improved. And this is also literature from uh, non-ICU patients uh, where uh, improved uh, detection and treatment was found to improve outcome, but also in ICU patients where... Uh, immediate detection and treatment uh, seem to have a positive effect. But uh, also this is something that we should uh, investigate much better and uh, 
we should pay much more attention to uh, to this topic as well. Based on what you know with your experience, are there things that we should be focusing on as intensivists which may improve um, the psychological outcome for our patients? Yeah, well, that is uh, that is related to the problem that we know so little about uh, all of this. And uh, what seems to be the case is that uh, sedation that has always been applied with best intentions, it's always has always been done, I think, uh, to provide comfort and to and and so for 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 the patient. But it turns out to be having a detrimental and opposite effect. Um, the frequency of um, uh, sedation. Uh, of the, the application of sedation seems to be a risk factor for long-term uh, mental health problems. Also, this is a very difficult area, and also this is something that is not completely clear how we should see this, because the um, need for sedation may also differ from patient to differs between patients, and this may also be related to other factors which may directly affect long-term uh, mental health. So one could imagine that patients who are most anxious and most agitated during ICU admission receive the most sedatives and for this reason that we find an association between the use of sedatives and long-term outcome. But in fact, this is explained by the underlying problem that, that there is an, an, a pre-existing anxiety or pre-existing psychiatric problems in these patients. There's been some work done around non-pharmacological interventions to reduce the incidence, especially of post-traumatic stress disorder, things like uh, ICU diaries and those sorts of things. How strong is the evidence for those sorts of things? There is some evidence uh, about this. There are, uh, have been performed two randomized clinical trials where patients received a diary or not a diary or were, were using a diary or not. And uh, the use of a diary indeed had a beneficial effect, so it uh, had a preventive effect on the occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that's what we are doing here at our institution as well. So uh, uh, all patients receive a diary who stay here for two days or longer, and these are really the patients at risk because the patients who stay here for a very short period of time after elective surgery, for example, are, are having a very uh, lower risk. So patients who stay here for two days or longer in, in our ICU receive a diary. The family members and friends contribute uh, to it and they report uh, things uh, we try to use as uh, little as uh, possible uh, sedatives or sedation. And, well, these factors uh, like uh, the use of diaries had a, had a good uh, effect in, in two randomized clinical trials. So that is, uh, that's very interesting and important to do. It's also quite easy to apply and to implement with regard to other non-pharmacological measures. It's difficult to study this. Uh, one would really want to do a randomized clinical trial comparing different types of measures. But this is very uh, difficult to, to assess and uh, there's uh, very few literature on, on this uh, until now. Arjun, where, finally, where would you like to see research focus in this area going into the future? I think it's it's really important to focus on this uh, more. We should make more contact in critical care community, working on this, more contact with the neuroscience community. Uh, there should be more insights from uh, there. Uh, people from neuroscience should uh, work more on, on these problems because this is really 
uh, moving uh, the field forward. It is very important, I think, to perform more investigations on the underlying substrate, what is happening in the brain. We, we have really very little knowledge on, uh, on this, while the uh, methods and techniques to assess brain disorders in general have exploded in the last decade or so. And that's really a shame that there is a kind of gap between the ICU community that is focusing very much on, of course, uh, topics like sepsis, mechanical ventilation, hemodynamics, uh, things like that, but not so much on neuropsychiatric problems. And, and the techniques and the, the, all the equipments are, are, are there uh, in neuroscience. So I think it's, it's important that we bridge the gap uh, with that. We should investigate much more the underlying uh, substrate and underlying mechanisms. We should also perform more studies on prevention therapy. It seems to be beneficial to activate patients more and to train them more and to stimulate them more, both physically but also cognitively. Uh, and I think these studies really need to be performed. It's very important. We are dealing with very frequent uh, complications uh, after very costly and lengthy admissions in the ICU in, in, in general. So for society, it's really important that these problems are addressed and, uh, and that much more uh, attention is paid to this. Arjun, thank you very much for your time. Congratulations on the publication of the manuscript. It's great to see such a, a focus on the quality of life issues after intensive care, and hopefully this paper and the uh, podcast you're recording right now will contribute to interest in this area. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. It was uh, really an honour. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Mark your calendar to attend the 46th Critical Care Congress to be held January 21st to 25th, 2017 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA. This five-day event will feature internationally renowned faculty and content sessions highlighting the most up-to-date, evidence-based developments in critical care medicine. Join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the island sunshine. Register at www.sccm.org congress. Todd Fraser, M.D., is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.